Hello and welcome to another edition of the Moving Iron Podcast. This podcast is proudly provided by Axon, helping dealers move more iron for almost 100 years. Find out more at axontire.com. Axon was started almost 100 years ago out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. It's that same passion that drives them today. With a vision for a better experience for both farmer and dealer, they set out to create a better way to move more iron. When you partner with Axon, you get immediate access to a full range of products and solutions designed to meet the complex needs of today's grower. Axon carries all major brands and sizes of tires, wheels, and tracks. From custom colors and sizes to fully customized wheels, you can have the solution for virtually any problem today's farmer is trying to solve. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving iron time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here. Moving iron. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast number 136. This or not 136, 236. Uh, this edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by Axon Tire, helping pe- people move more iron for the last 100 years. For more information, go to axontire.com. Also, if you're looking for a great place to help your salespeople sell more stuff and do deals faster, check out Arrow at heyarrow.com. This week, my guest is a longtime podcast uh, guest here, Tanner Emke. Tanner is with CoBank, and Tanner is uh, a fellow Kansas. So anytime I get to talk to somebody from Kansas, makes it's just two smart people talking at that point. You know what I mean? So it's uh, it's good to have good to have somebody from Kansas on here. How you doing, buddy? Good. It's great to be back, Casey. Yeah, it's good to see you, man. Well, Tanner, there's there's a million things going on for the, for those of you that don't know uh, who Tanner is. Uh, Tanner, why don't you just give a quick, quick little rundown of what you do at CoBank? Sure, I'm an economist uh, in uh, CoBank's research department that we call Knowledge Exchange. Um, I focus on dairy and dairy and specialty crops, and uh, been here since uh, 2015. And before that, I was in Kansas. Uh, I was farming yeah. my family seed company. Before that, I was a commodities analyst in Chicago. So. I've had my uh, around the block. I've walked around the block a few times on commodity markets, uh, from all aspects of it. From uh, you know the Chicago Board of Trade, uh, being in farming and uh, grain markets, to now as an economist at CoBank. Um, so yeah, so Tanner's been on here a lot. A lot. He's he's got a lot of great um, economy driven information, you know, and we'll talk about that a little bit here. But there's a there's a million things going on right now, Tanner. You take a look at whether we're talking about shortages across the board, whether you're talking about seed, fertilizer, um, machinery, um, I, you know, the list goes on and on and on of what that might look like. Yeah. As you take a look at that from, from a, a 50,000 foot view, going into 22, there's not really much on the horizon that shows anything's going to be any different. So how, what do you think the overall impact of that's going to be to the farm economy as a whole? Well, the uh, the impact obviously is going to be rising costs. Uh, that's been talked about at length, uh, and I think, yeah, you know, everything's kind of got its own story. You know, you obviously know machinery quite well. I mean, you've got a lot of things there going on with semiconductors and a big spike in demand for new machinery because of high commodity prices. Well, we don't have 
that machinery there, uh, and we have uh, high demand for it, and that's impacting machinery prices and used machinery prices. Or with fertilizer, uh, we just came out with a, a report this week uh, by Ken Zuckerberg. Ken's our uh, grain and farm supply economist here at CoBank. Ken's pretty concerned about what's going to happen next spring uh, with fertilizer availability. Typically, the farm supply co-ops uh, are going to be carrying a fair amount of product uh, into the new year. And uh, that inventory is not in the warehouse, uh, as you would normally expect. And so uh, they're, uh, you're, they're expecting a lot higher fertilizer prices uh, heading into the next spring. And there, there's going to be that expectation that uh, farmers are going to be cutting back on their fertility programs uh, because of that. Uh, if they, if not for cost, if for also for lack of availability too. So you've got uh, the, you have the knock on effects of that, uh, perhaps with yields and things like that uh, later on uh, next harvest. Uh, but we'll see. We got a long ways to go between uh, between now and then. Uh, and then you've got um, labor shortages uh, across the board at agriculture. That's always been a problem, especially in dairy and especially crops. Uh, that I cover that are very manually and uh, manual labor intensive. And, uh, and that's something that we're going to see playing out through most of 2022. The thing on labor is that that's not quote unquote transitory. Like the fed has been talking about because we've had 6 million workers leave the economy for a whole, for all their own different reasons. I mean, you had uh, people taking early, retirements, you had people wanting to start their own companies, you have people of, of uh, fragile health that are immunocompromised and they don't want to get COVID at the office or at work. Uh, and so they've left the workforce uh, or perhaps they're t caring for children uh, or uh, uh, other uh, family members that are of fragile health. So all these people have left the workforce and perhaps some of them might be coming back. Uh, but I would expect that most of them are gone permanently. They're not coming back. If they do, it's going to be over a very long uh, period. And so you've got this, uh, this crush of, uh, of uh, or excuse me, of um, this dearth of workers in the workforce. And when you're in agriculture and you're heavily dependent on labor, that's a big problem. Uh, whether you're talking about production agriculture uh, with uh, farm, with, with uh, you know, field operations of planting and harvesting, uh, or other field operations, uh, and then you have processing. You know, you're you got to uh, convert all these raw materials into a processed good for consumers. Uh, and when you don't have the people there to do it, um, you know, you're, that causes that kink in the supply chain uh, throughout all of agriculture. And then you've got uh, the drivers, the truck drivers, to move all those products from rural America to urban America. And nationwide, I think we're short about 80,000 uh, workers is what I've heard from the last uh, estimate, uh, excuse me, 80,000 drivers. And pre-pandemic, uh, we were short maybe about 70,000. So the problem has only increased uh, with uh, that shortage of long haul drivers. Uh, locally, uh, that is a real problem in rural communities where you already have uh, uh, low populations and an aging workforce. And if you have just a couple of people decide to take an early retirement, you lose a couple of truck drivers in a small community. That can have some big effects. 
So um, then at the same time, it's that competition for scarce uh, workers or scarce drivers. Let's say, for instance, I know back in my home home area of Western Kansas, uh, one of our biggest competitors for uh, for drivers was the oil industry, oil and gas. Uh, when these oil rigs start drilling uh, more uh, wells and they start putting up more rigs, um, they need truck drivers to move all that oil. Well, there's only so many people in a small community uh, who are available to drive those trucks. And the oil companies typically were able, are almost consistently more uh, able to pay more uh, for that truck driver compared to what the, the farmer can pay. And so uh, the, with oil prices as they are, um, you know, that's going to create even more stress uh, on the local agricultural infrastructure. So uh, these aren't things that are going to get resolved soon. In fact, I think that um, the pandemic has highlighted what has been an ongoing problem in agriculture, and that is the uh, shortage of of uh, workers uh, in local economies that uh, are experiencing a declining and aging workforce, and that's especially true uh, in the in uh, animal agriculture like dairy and ranching and specialty crops, uh, where you've got hand pickers out there uh, or hand harvesters or you know thing, a lot of people out there uh, planting and harvesting by hand. So uh, I think these are things that uh, highlight you know some. Uh, perhaps some policy issues. Uh, perhaps we need to be increasing immigration. Uh, that's always a sticky situation. I know the H-2A program has been, has been uh, the savior for a lot of people in production ag. Um, you know, we've been bringing more and more workers in from countries like South Africa. Well, guess what? We got a problem now with yeah. Omicron in South Africa. <laughs> so um, it's just kind of like this one thing after another. And yeah, I don't want to be doomsday about uh, about the ag economy. I mean, it, commodity prices are high. You know, you know, farmers and ranchers and processors are going to find a way to, you know, to, to make the most of the situation. Uh, but we're going to ultimately, long term, Casey. This comes down to investment in technology. Uh, for instance, in dairy, uh, what I cover, um, that's going to be more focus on robotic milkers. Uh, it's going to be more focused on uh, automation in parlors, uh, using cameras and things like that to track cows. Uh, you know, th those kind of things start to make a lot more sense when you can't find the workers there to manage the herd. And when, let's say, for instance, you were paying 15 to $20 an hour, now you're paying 20 to $25 an hour. Well, guess what? The math changes on that technology. It starts to make financial sense. Uh, where perhaps it didn't uh, used to make financial sense uh, earlier. So that's what's going to happen now in this uh, wage inflation environment is that technology is going to cash flow a lot faster uh, because the alternative of manual labor um, is so much more expensive. So I think uh, a year like this past year and next year especially, is going to drive a lot of operations across the agricultural supply chain uh, into more uh, mechanization and automation. Uh, that's where we go with this. Yeah, I agree. I talk about that a lot <clears throat> from the equipment standpoint, just because of um, what you just talked about. I mean, I don't know. I've been in the farm equipment business for 15 years now, and I don't know that we've, there's been 15 years of conversations about 
the shortage of, of help and what that looks yeah. like. So I think that uh, that autonomous kind of standpoint isn't going to come out of, man, it sure is cool to have one, which that'll be kind of part of it, but it's going to be more overwhelmingly, you know, now I only need to have one combine driver to cover, you know, three grain cart tractors, you know, because they're yeah. all cells around type of thing. Yeah, it kind of you're forced into the situation. Yeah, right. Prior to that, you were thinking this would be cool technology to have one day. Now it's the discussion is, boy, what else am I going to do? I have to do this, right? Uh, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna maintain operations or grow up or grow our operation, we we, we the only way you're going to be able to do that is is um, deployment of uh, technology to so the the avail- your workforce can do more, yep. and that also. That also requires perhaps more training. Uh, yeah. That's one conversation that gets left out is when you climb the, climb the technology chain, you got to have employees who know how to use the technology. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so that can't get left out of the conversation. And those, those type of skilled workers are going to cost more too. Um, they're not going to necessarily be your unskilled worker. Now they're going to be skilled workers who require training and they're going to require higher pay. So the, the, the economy starts to evolve a lot faster from being unskilled to more skilled. You got to have these, you got to have people who are willing to live and work in rural America and do these kind of jobs, but are also skilled and trained and uh, know how to uh, be up to date on the latest technologies. And as we know with tech, it's going to change. You know, you, you may buy, uh, buy up the tech chain today and you may be on the leading edge of technology. Uh, for now, but pretty soon that technology evolves pretty quick right. <laughs> and you got to stay on top of it, which means now you got to change how your viewpoint of, of labor. You no longer hiring commodity labor, uh, people that are unskilled. You've got to find a way to retain your skilled workers and keep them up to date on their skills and their knowledge of technology. I mean, this, this forces an, a change across the entire landscape of agriculture. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, uh, that's kind of the $64,000 question. You know, like when and where and how, and I've had the conversation a few times that like just what you just said, you know, if you're, if you're, uh, staying on top of technology and you're at, you know, gen four technology or whatever it might be, spare technology or whatever it is. And the guy coming into that's just now getting the gen one, your efficiency is, you know, exponentially greater at you know the gen four level whatever it is you know at the gen if gen one is you know 50 percent better i mean gen four is going to be you know 90 percent better of his 50 percent you know what i mean so it's yeah that huge leap and i think it's going to even that technology is going to drive you know winners and losers more than i think it it ever has before because as you look at now most technology farm technology agricultural technology is openly available to about anybody, whether it's seed technology, chemical technology, fertilizer, machines, whatever it is, it's pretty well across the board. It's, it's pretty well available to anyone. Sooner or later, that that expense, that technology and the people that you have to hire to, to man that technology is going to start separating out, you know, even the, the most profitable folks are going to start getting kind of left behind if they don't stay up on what's this technology look at. And in any industry, whether it's you know, especially on the specialty crop side, I don't know how many videos I've watched of autonomous, um, you know, nut tree sprayers and, yeah. you know, those kind of things where, like where you said, you know, it's some of that um, high labor intensive areas where they're 
their short labor, they're starting to kind of look at more of these drone technology to, to really accomplish a lot of those tasks. Yeah. And that's always been the case, really. I mean, when you're a labor in a labor intensive uh, industry like ag, uh, technology is always going to be the easy to it'd be a disruptor. I mean, go back how many generations? Not that long ago, we were we were still we still had farms that were using mules and sure. horse uh, horse drawn uh, plows. Um, I mean, that that's really honestly uh, Casey, like our grandparents. Right. Uh, probably grew up with that technology. And if you didn't mechanize quickly, your farm was taken over by somebody who did get that technology. Right. You know, and that's no different than today. Yep. Not at all. I mean, it's, it's more so today than anything else, except now we're getting into these technologies that are so, so far beyond a lot of us, what we can even uh, comprehend. We're starting getting into data management and, you know, AI and I mean, just levels of sophistication on technology that is mind blowing. Right. And it's not slowing down, it's only getting faster. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I could talk about this for hours, but <clears throat> we want to, yeah. uh, we want to, let's jump over and talk about inflation for a little bit. So inflation is a big deal. Yeah. I came out um, and Janet Yellen came out um, earlier this week, talked a lot about, um, you know, we need to retire the word transitory and and uh, tapering is going to start happening at a rap more rapid pace and probably going to look at <clears throat> sometime, you know, March, April, June time frame um, at, at raising some rates. Let's start start looking at, at raising some rates and what that might look like and how that is going to affect the overall economy. So yeah. as an economist, as you're looking at inflation, right, obviously inflation is a big deal. Um, it just make everything more expensive and so on and so forth. But as you take a look at all the government programs that we have out there that are, the Fed's going to print more money and, and could possibly make the inflation worse than what it is right now, and then you start talking about tapering and raising rates, there's a lot of stuff in that pot that, that don't necessarily mix. So what are your, what's your thoughts on that? Well, the Fed is still printing money. And even when uh, you know, Chairman uh, Powell says we're going to uh, uh, accelerate our uh, – tapering process faster than we had anticipated they're still printing a lot of money uh, right now you know, in their november meeting they they talked about reducing their bond purchases by 15 billion a month and right now uh, really coming into this they were buying 120 billion per month so if you do the math you walk that back 15 uh, a 15 billion reduction per month that puts you at june when they would be ready to start raising rates so he indicated in his last testimony yeah, uh, we're a little scared about this inflation thing. This is serious. Uh, we're going to do it faster than that. Well, between now and then, uh, all they're doing is taking their foot off the gas a little bit faster. They haven't started raising rates yet. And so we're still in a loose monetary policy. Uh, rates are historically still quite low. And even when they start raising rates, the question is, how far and how fast can they really do it? Can, can Chairman Powell do like Paul Volcker did? Back in the 70s and early 80s. I mean, that was phenomenal. He took rates all the way up to 20%. Right. So the question is, uh, what can what is uh, capable or what is uh, Chairman Powell capable of doing? Although he said he's going to accelerate the tapering and uh, he'd be open to raising rates a lot faster or sooner rather than he had indicated prior, 
Uh, the question is, what is the capacity of rate increases? What can the economy handle with uh, the trillions and trillions of dollars of debt out there? Right. Um, and so I think that we are in unknown territory here because of that. And I, I think that uh, that's the big unknown is uh, what is it? What is what can the economy uh, handle uh, without going into recession? Right. Uh, can the can the economy handle a rate of you know two or three rate hikes next year without going into recession? We don't really know because we've never had an economy like this before that has uh, that has so much debt, um, not in the not just in the United States but around the world. So I think that's that's what everyone's uh, looking at is you know what does he you know, he can indicate that he's going to be more hawkish and uh, start tapering faster, but uh, the question is how how far and how fast can he go before the bubble pops? Uh, that's, I, I don't have any insights on that. Otherwise, you know, I'd, I'd own my own Island, my own yacht, but um, I think that's the big unknown, but I think that, uh, you know, underlying a lot of this, you know, is this, it, go, it goes back to labor and uh, that is not transitory. You had some 6 million people leave the economy. You got wage inflation. That's not going to go away. Even after uh, we get through uh, this, this period of, of uh, you had all these uh, consumers shopping online and uh, you know all these log jams at the ports. Well, we're going to move past this once we get past through the holidays. Uh, a lot of this uh, log jam problem uh, that is driving inflation is going to go away, uh, and transportation rates are coming down some. But we're still left with the labor problem. Uh, how many workers are going to come back? Well. Most of a lot of them probably aren't, and so that's that is not going to go away anytime soon, and that's going to drive inflation. I think that's what's got him concerned. So um, I think uh, what that means for agriculture then here is two things. Number one, um, in a higher rate environment, <clears throat> excuse me, that's what that directly means is that loans for uh, farm operating uh, loans is are going are going to go up on uh, interest rates. And so interest expense for farmers and ranchers and everyone else in agriculture is going to go up a little bit. The other issue is that uh, what, what a more hawkish uh, policy, uh, monetary policy uh, means uh, in respect to the value of the U.S. dollar. And as the monetary policy tightens, that's bullish on the dollar. And if you look at the, the impact of the dollar here recently, it's been quite volatile. It's gone up a lot. And what that means for agriculture is that our exports become more uh, expensive and that would be a headwind to our export program. And historically speaking, a strong dollar is negative on agricultural commodities. Now uh, it's not across the board uh, where you're going to have that effect. And I talked about this uh, at a conference here this week at the farm journal milk conference. And, you know, some of this may be impact. Some of our markets may be impacted more than others. Some may be immune to it. Like say, for instance, uh, uh, you know, our dairy exports uh, could be impacted over to Asia, but at the same time, we've got a retraction of the global dairy herd, especially over in New Zealand and Europe. And we've got uh, historically high milk prices over in China and much of Asia. Well, even with a strong dollar, the U.S. now is kind of like one of the only places you can go now right. if you're going to see declining milk uh, production in New Zealand and, and uh, the EU. So I use that as an example that there's a lot of nuance here. It's hard to say that 
a, uh, a stronger or a tighter monetary policy is going to be negative for agriculture. There are going to be some aspects of agriculture that may be immune to it. Uh, you don't know, but um, I don't know what there's a lot. There's a lot uh, that goes into those decisions uh, at the fed and uh, Omicron or Omicron, however you want to say it uh, could change some of that. Uh, the jobs report that just came out today uh, indicated that hiring slowed down quite a bit, uh, that companies are concerned about uh, the Omicron becoming a, a drag on the economy and impacting business. And so that may very well turn into something that uh, could affect uh, the Fed's decision on how fast or how soon they want to raise rates. So a lot of things up in the air there, Casey. Um, uh, but all we know is that uh, the Fed is concerned about uh, inflation now. The, the word transitory is probably not going to be as much in their vocabulary, vocabulary as it used to be. Uh, that much we know. We'll find out uh, about Omicron in the next, uh, over the next several weeks. Yeah. All right. So in the new in the bill that just got passed, the uh, infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better uh, bill, which I don't know if it's been – has it been passed yet? No, I don't think so. Thanks for Pasha, but I think it's getting close. Anyway, there is some agricultural things that are involved in in those bills. Um, both one of which um, you mentioned before, and which you know, since your your focus is primarily dairy, um, the government is going to buy uh, what sixteen? You say sixteen million pounds of of cheese? Yeah, a fair amount of cheese they're going to buy, and that's been bullish on uh, on cheese markets. Um, but again, there. Once you get into the nuance, uh, we got a lot of cheese in this country, so um, you know it's probably not going to have the effect that uh, the food box program. If you remember that, uh, in the depths of uh, the pandemic in 2020, the government was buying huge uh, amounts of cheese that caused extreme volatility that we've never seen before in cheese markets, and uh, and that uh, directly impacted uh, the volatility in milk prices, and uh, that's probably not going to be happening this time because we've got so much cheese sitting in uh, cold storage. So whatever they, whatever they buy, uh, is, uh, you know, that's supportive of, uh, the markets. But, you know, when you've got a surplus of, uh, inventory out there, um, it's going to have a limited effect on prices. So there is some positive things there. I would stress that it, you know, the, the package, the, this infrastructure package, um, is going to be spread out over a period of years. And the bulk of the spending doesn't happen until 2024. So uh, we've got a lot, there's a lot of things that can happen between now and then. And uh, the economy may be in a recession by then. Um, and we may need this extra spending from the government yeah. uh, to help get us through it. So um, I, I hate to, I, I'm hesitant to start, you know, uh, weighing in on, uh, you know, uh, the impacts of what that would be. But um, in the big picture, though, infrastructure is a good thing to be going into debt. If you're going to be going into debt on anything, it's infrastructure because that's going to have uh, longer term payouts on the economy in your productivity. So that's I typically don't see debt as a good thing. But if you're gonna, if the government's going to be going into debt, infrastructure is a good thing to be to be to doing that on. Yeah, okay. you want to invest for the future. Agreed. Um, okay, so let's talk about a little bit about you know some shortage. You kind of hit it on a little bit with uh, with milk and talking about New Zealand and the EU kind of having some fallback there on on a little bit what they what they have as far as milk production goes. When you look at overall ending stocks, um, 
for corn, wheat, rice, um, soybeans. I mean, we're, we don't necessarily have a bunch of that stuff laying around. Um, seems to be a fairly decent crop out there. Uh, it's kind of spotty depending on, on where you're at and what that looks like. But for the most part, there's, uh, there is some, some room for some surplus there. I guess as you take a look at overall commodity market as a whole and just overall yeah. stock out there, what are your thoughts there? And, you know, with some, some of the situations that we see right now in South America with some Brazilian um, dryness going on, those kind of things, there is some stress out there. You got the situation in Russia with Ukraine and what does that look like? Those are, you know, one, you know, two of the biggest uh, wheat producing countries in the world. And, you know, if there were something to happen there, I mean, there's a big disruption there. So there's not like a lot of, lot of uh, leeway in a lot of these markets to where um, if there is some kind of a disruption, whether it's a, a weather event or a, some kind of a supply chain disruption, even more than what we've got now, you can see some prices really take off and run. So I guess as you take a look at the whole macro here, what's your sure. thought about that? Well, right now the, uh, the situation looks like that feed costs or grain and forage costs going to be moderating uh, in 2022. So, uh, for any end user, whether you're feeding uh, dairy cows or pigs, chickens, or uh, beef cattle, or running it through an ethanol plant, um, you know that that situation looks to be improving on cost uh, with those grain prices uh, moderating. Um, yeah, we still need to get more information um, on what's going to happen in South America because it's a La Nina year, and that's typically dry. It is dry, as you pointed out, in southern Brazil and parts of Argentina. We got to get through this growing season before we understand uh, what that uh, production uh, looks like. But I think um, you know the uh, the cost inflation on feed uh, is the positive story here for end users, and you know that's that's been a, a needed uh, reprieve from this inflation uh, environment that we've been seeing. Uh, feed costs just went phenomenally high this past year. And we've also had drought out in the western part of the U.S. Uh, impacting hay uh, and uh, corn and silage um, production, uh, especially out in places like California and the Southwest. And so the the, uh, the improved crop scenario that we're seeing this year with uh, stocks elevated, uh, that's that's huge. We need that. I think the big story here is what's going to happen in South America. You also mentioned uh, what's going on in the FSU, former Soviet Union, and you know that that's a big reason as to why we have such high wheat prices, and uh, they are restricting uh, uh, exports out of that part of the world. Um, you know that's going to be, you know, that's hard to that's the geopolitical situation that you're referring to there, Casey, is hard to get hard to gather. Um, I think you're referring to Putin and his desire to acquire uh, part of Ukraine. Is that right? <laughs> I don't have any opinions on that other than it would probably be disruptive somehow. I, <laughs> I would I, I would assume that there would be, you know, on a very large, very macro viewpoint, some sort of penalty on Russia if they were to do that and. Uh, People, uh, you know, countries would say we're not taking your wheat as a as a consequence, and that may shift uh, purchases over to the other parts of you know their exporters like the EU or the US. Um, but you know that's that's a whole other issue. I think that uh, on the feed situation, though, that 
that's been a that's been the positive right now. And um, you know, if you look at the futures curve, it's uh, it's definitely moderated. Uh, we just have to see what happens in South America. Uh, longer term, we've also got a situation with this uh, renewable diesel, yep. and also part of this uh, this package, this Build Back Better, is the jet fuel, renewable jet fuel mm-hmm. um, subsidy or credit. Boy, I tell you what, I, I've talked to some economists about that, and uh, they anticipate that in order to fulfill the demand, we're going to need about twenty eight more, twenty eight million more acres of soybeans. That's not coming from the U.S. We're tapped out. It's going to come from South America. So in the longer term, that's going to be driving uh, a lot more demand uh, for oil seeds. And, um, you know, that's the driver there is going to be soybean oil. The positive here is that soybean meal or canola meal, whatever whatever grain they're going to be using, uh, would be in surplus domestically. And we'd sacrifice our soybean export program in that scenario. So domestic supplies of soybean meal would be a positive. Uh, so uh, not necessarily a bad thing uh, for end users if you are a buyer of soybean meal. But that's in that longer term viewpoint if we were to fulfill that demand. Uh, that would be positive for domestic end users. Yeah, yeah it's a lot, of, a lot of moving parts there. You know, you look at, um, like you talked about the feed, the feed side of it, um, cattle prices have been... Um, you know, they're kind of a seasonal low, but they've had some rebound here and they've been looking like that. And I think a lot of that has to do with what we're seeing with feed prices, the, the price of, of corn and wheat yep. crops have come down. So definitely, definitely move there. Um, I think probably the last thing I want to hit on here, Tanner, a little bit, as you take a look at that, from a, from a specialty crop standpoint, um, that that's a very much, a, like you talked about earlier, having to pay people more to come and do those kind of things. And from the inflationary side, when you go to the produce aisle at your, at your grocery store, whether it's sugar beets and sugar and those kind of things, when you look at those things, as you move through 22, what are some of your thoughts on, on that, on that specialty crop area? I mean, are we, should we expect to see higher prices, um, dramatically higher prices than what we're seeing now going into 22? Well, on your major crops, um, you know, that come out of California, yeah, there's there's going to be a lot of pressure there just because of the drought uh, or the weather extremity, extremities that we've seen there in record precipitation in October after uh, following a record uh, drought. And so just extreme weather does not bode well for production. Uh, and then um, tightness in labor, obviously, uh, having to lean harder on the H-2A program. Um, you know, there's going to be some impacts there, I think, more directly from uh, – the weather scenario, we're going to have a, a smaller uh, tree nut harvest. So tre- uh, almonds, pistachios, uh, those kind of nuts, walnuts, uh, those are going to be in shorter supply. And we've had a phenomenal increase in global demand for nuts this past year. So you're going to have uh, a significant change in pricing there for sure. Um, then at the same time, uh, you have this trend driven by the drought of acres shifting out of uh, row crops, uh, whether that's cotton or uh, processing tomatoes or silage uh, or any other row crop like uh, broccoli, what have you, uh, moving out of those acres and moving into uh, your permanent plantings like uh, like uh, tree nuts that are mechanically harvested and require less labor. And so the... Uh, the situation there is that a lot of that produce production is going to move 
overseas to countries or not necessarily overseas across border. We'll say that because Mexico is not overseas technically. Uh, places like uh, Chile uh, and Mexico, Peru, those kind of areas are going to be picking up a lot of that fresh produce production. And we're going to be moving into the uh, uh, permanent plantings like uh, tree nuts uh, or you know, naval oranges, that kind of stuff. And that's, that's going to have an impact uh, on pricing as well, uh, what's paid at the grocery store. Um, and because there's also, at the same time, a, uh, a transportation cost there, a logistics issue. Uh, when you move more and more of that produce production overseas, you got to move it a further distance to the United States. And logistics is still an issue. Uh, the cost of transportation is still an issue. F fuel costs are still elevated. So the ultimate uh, change here then, or the change in cost is going to be borne mostly by the consumer. And we've seen that in the data uh, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics when they produce, they produce those numbers uh, by sector on inflation. If you look at the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, on uh, fruits, nuts, vegetables, it just goes up, 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 up. When you look at the PPI, the Producer Price Index, on fruits, nuts, vegetables, it's gone down, down, down. Well, what's causing that divergence there? It's all in transportation. It's moving that product from the farm to the city, and it's got to change numerous hands. And when you have a lot of that production capacity uh, moving abroad, it's just going to add even more cost uh, in uh, moving it uh, from these further off locations like Mexico or Chile uh, and getting it to the grocery store here in the United States. Uh, so that's, I think, uh, part of that dynamic there. Uh, plus, just internally here in the inter inside the United States, refrigerated trucking rates are record high. Um, so if you want to move produce from California to New Jersey, um, I think the last time I looked at that, it was like 10000 uh, bucks for a truck, for a refrigerated truck. And so now the economics start changing to where local produce starts to be more cost-effective, starts to be more profitable. Uh, and some of the, we're starting to see more investment back to this conversation we were having earlier, Casey, about technology, about vertical agriculture, about moving production closer to the consumer so you don't have to pay 10000 bucks for a refrigerated truck to move it from California to someplace else. So that is, one of the again, one of those longer-term impacts of this labor shortage of high transportation costs, those elevated uh, co dual costs are starting to change the math for these investments uh, where uh, you have vertical agriculture producing things like leafy greens closer to these urban centers. Uh, and when you produce these, this, these, uh, these crops uh, using, uh, uh, using indoor agriculture, well, it also makes sense to do it highly to have the technology there to make it automated as well. So it's going to be um, close to the consumer, uh, highly automated, and very efficient uh, in uh, terms of labor and energy and water and all those other inputs. So that's one of those other longer-term effects that's going to be uh, driven by uh, this inflationary environment. Well, Terrence, good stuff, man. Thanks for being on the podcast. And if folks want to reach out to you and get more information about what it is you're doing there at CoBank and how what what kind of information you can gather from CoBank and the knowledge exchanger, what's the best way to do that? Uh, you can always go to our website, cobank.com. Um, 
and you've got uh, on the website, you've got all of our uh, reports. Uh, you can, you can uh, download. Uh, you can also find our uh, contact information online as well. Right on. Good deal. Man, I appreciate you being on the podcast again, Tanner. Thanks, Casey. Great to be back. I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. Make sure you check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. That's where you're going to find the latest editions of the Moving Iron Podcast. Also go to movingironllc.com for everything Moving Iron related. So with that, I am Casey Seymour with Tanner Emke. Let's go move some iron, folks. Out. You want to have a meaningful competitive advantage to help sell more equipment. Whether you represent the sales, parts, or management department of an implement dealership, there's a surprising amount of complexity when it comes to tire, wheel, and track technology. Let Axon worry about that so you can get back to supporting your customers. Axon has leveraged years of experience to create a streamlined process that gives you a proven path to help today's grower and sell more equipment. The roots of their organization go back almost 100 years to the invention of the rubber tractor tire. Supporting agriculture is the number one driver of Axon from product development through sales and service. To find more or become an Axon dealer, head over to axontire.com. In the 21st century Hard-working people Working hard for you and me Moving higher Time and time again Through the years you'll find us here